All right, so once again, thank you for being here tonight. I want to welcome everybody and all those listening on our podcast channel. Uh, this evening, we're going to be studying the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Romans 6. If you like to use your iPhone or your iPad, that's fine too. And if you don't have a Bible, no worries. All the verses are going to be on the screen right behind me. So let's jump right in, Romans chapter 6, verse 1, and let's see what uh, Paul wants to tell us. So this is what he says. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning, sinning so that grace may increase? Now. <laughs> yeah, I know. It sounds exact. It's, yeah. So when we study a, a chapter like Romans 6, what we really need to do is get an understanding of where Paul is coming from and why on earth he would ask a question like that. Right? Because let's be honest, it sounds like a really, I was going to say strange question, but it's bigger than that. It sounds like an awful question, right? When you get to the heart of that. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Right? Unfortunately, truth is, that's probably a question Paul was asked, or he saw people doing things that clearly meant that's what they were thinking, right? And the, the idea behind it is okay, since the sin I created brought me this much grace, if I do this much sin, how much more grace am I going to get, right? Almost like a price is right. Let's spin that wheel and see how much we can get. And the premise behind that question, let's be honest, is, it's, it's terrible. It completely misses the point of what grace is. And grace is God's free gift of love and forgiveness through Jesus Christ, right? But for us to receive that gift, we do have to admit to our own sin. We have to repent, we have to be baptized, right? We need to sin less in our lives. To try to come up with a system where we try to game the system where more sin equals a little more grace and a little more sin equals more grace completely just shows you don't understand what is going on, right? You're trying to manipulate the system. So to get a picture of why, why Paul would ask a question like that, we need to understand that Paul talked with all kinds of people. He traveled a lot, he met people from all walks of life with different faiths, people who believed in certain things, people who didn't believe in anything. Um, he met people who heard the good news of Jesus Christ and turned their lives over. They believed. He met people who heard the good news of Jesus Christ and wanted nothing to do with any of it. Thank you, but there's the door. He met people who heard the good news and were kind of bought in. Like, okay, I can maybe go to church two or three times a year, but don't push it, right? Mm. He, met, he, heard, he met people who heard the good news and then saw a way that they saw a way that they can twist it for their own benefit. He met people who likely heard good news, but then tried to find loopholes, ways to bend the rules so they can still feel like they call themselves Christian but never really change anything they do, right? So when Paul teaches us, he makes sure he's going to cover all the bases, all the people, all the potential situations that he's ever encountered, right? Because his goal is no matter where the world is, he wants every one of them to improve and get better in their faith, to have the best chance to know Jesus Christ regardless, right? Because let's be honest, no, where, no matter where you are in your faith, we can always do better. We can always grow a little more. And that's where he's coming from, right? So to make a bigger point, let me share this a great visual that my uh, mentor did. He shared with me when I was in seminary. It stuck with me, and it, it, it's, it's true. He says, one of those, he says, listen, now you're getting ready to graduate. After you take your vows, 
you're going to head out into the world with your Bible, and let me tell you, you're going to feel on fire. You're going to feel like an, a Jedi that can take on Darth Vader, right? You're going to be so pumped up, you feel like you can take on the devil himself. Every person you meet, you think you're going to be able to convert them, they're going to come right to Jesus, there's going to be a huge line of people waiting to get baptized. It's going to be, just be awesome. That's how you're going to feel, right? Do you, you get the energy, right? But he said, this is actually what's going to happen. He said, imagine the cross that's right under here is actually Jesus Christ himself. And this is how it's going to be. Some people you talk to are going to want to hear the gospel. It's going to move them, and they're going to physically move closer towards that cross. Some people are going to be like, hmm, and they're going to turn and face the cross, but they're never going to move one inch. That's it. Some people are going to be facing the exact opposite way like I am now, and you're going to get them to turn around. Some people, they're going to go from this to this, and they're never going to budge. Some people won't even turn at all. Some people are going to pretend to be on their phone so they don't have to talk to you. The reason he said this to me, and it's true, is that your job is simply to share the gospel. That is it. No matter how well you're treated, no matter how people accept it, it doesn't matter. Share the gospel. Jesus never said every person you talk to is going to completely swallow the message. Whoa, this is amazing. It's not going to happen. They didn't happen to him. He said, go teach about sin. Go teach about salvation. Go teach about repentance, baptism, just the way Jesus did. Some people will take to that message. Some won't. Some people will love you for it. Some will not. Some people are going to ask really, really good questions. Some people are going to ask, well, okay. And some people are going to, you can see, they're going to try to twist it at some point for their own benefit. But regardless, your job is to do what? Share the gospel. Your job is to try to reach everybody regardless. Because however they started out, your job is to get them as close as possible to the cross. And if that's just to get them, their back is to it to turn this way, that's a win. That's a start. Your job is, Paul talks about planting seeds. Someone else may come in water. Someone else may then get to go farther. Your job is just simply to do that no matter what. And this is what we're going to see as Paul is doing in chapter, Romans chapter 6. He's sharing the gospel. He's answering questions, clarifying everything. And I mean everything. Even like the question we just read. And he's going to do that because all people matter. Right, that's the purpose for his original question. So now let's go into uh, verses 2 and 3, and let's see how he answers that question. Because Paul's one of those guys, he's going to tee up a question from something he experienced, and then he's going to give us the answer. So Romans 6, verses 2 and 3. His answer is, by no means we should do this. Like, no way. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? So obviously his answer is a big fat no to what he asked. And then he compares what we need to do to Jesus' death on the cross. Now that's an interesting way to put this. He says, Jesus died for our sins. He died to pay for our debts. debts. Therefore, the least we can do is die to our sinful lives. We need to die to our old, way, our old ways. Really his question is, how, why should we get off so easy? We're the ones that put him there. It's our sins he's dying for. So the best way to show Jesus we want to leave our sinful life behind is to die to our old ways, to actually change. And so what Paul is saying is when we get baptized, what the washing of the water means in a way is that 
Yes, it washes away our sins, but it symbolizes us being attached to Jesus and his death. The reason why baptism works is because what? Jesus died on the cross. For example, if all Jesus did was encourage people to get baptized and he never did anything else, including die on the cross, would we still be saved? Would our sin remain? Yes, it would. Right? And here's why. Hebrews 9, 22. This is what it says. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And here's the important part. And without what? The shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So everything about a relationship with God needs to actually come from this. It all comes down to the fact that we are separate from God because we sin. Right? Just think back to Adam and Eve. What happened to them after they ate of the apple? You get a high five from God? Woo, nice one. No, what did he do? He kicked them from the Garden of Eden. And not just that. Read the story again. He kicked them from the Garden of Eden. He placed an angel at the entrance. And what did he place in that angel's hand? A flaming, not a regular sword, a flaming sword. It's like an AR-15 that's on fire and shoots flamethrowers too. He meant business. That is a one-way door forever for sinful humans. Think about the Israelites and the animal sacrifices they had to do regularly to atone for their sins. All that stuff. Think about how in the holy temple, the holy of holies, is an area of the temple you could not go to because if you did, what would happen to you? You would die. That's not all. Think about every part of the holy temple. Even the courtyard was sectioned off. There was an area... Every, man, every person could go, and there's a place they could not go. In this building, you guys can walk anywhere you want, right? There's, there's no problem. They could not do that. That was their life, and it was because of sin. It's only once Jesus died on the cross, we were told that the temple curtain tore in two, that he changed the situation completely, and now we can approach God. Everything before the system, before Jesus Christ, everything about the system kept us from God. Now that Jesus died on the cross, everything directs us to God. So Paul's point from verse 2 and 3 is that we need to die to our life of sin, the way Jesus died for sins. Without getting that concept down, we never stand a chance. If we simply claim we like the idea of forgiveness of sin and salvation— but we don't actually change, we don't die to our old ways, are we really even saved? Maybe not. It's like, it's like reading the Bible, but treating it like a buffet line at a restaurant. I like all this stuff about heaven, definitely. Golden roads, never get sick, always like fabulous weather. This stuff about owning up to my sins, I'll leave that. It looks like lima beans and vegetables. I don't want that. Yet that's what we do. See, to, to stay in our old ways, our old sinful life, means we don't get it. Now I want to take a step back for a moment. And I want to, let's look at this from a mo- more modern view. In the 1930s, there was a German theologian, you may have heard his name before, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he saw the same problem. And he said some really cool stuff. But he saw the same problem, but he gave it a name. And he, did, he just nailed it. So I've got to give him all the credit. He called it cheap grace. And let's look at his definition. Cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without what? Requiring repentance. Baptism without 
church discipline. Communion without confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Again, he nailed it. He makes it clear you can only be forgiven once you've asked for repentance. Because if you're not repenting, what exactly are you being forgiven for? Mr. Bonhoeffer says, you should only be baptized if you understand you're a sinner, if you want your sins washed away. He says, you shouldn't participate in communion without first getting right with God. He's saying, don't take communion and not reflect on what Jesus did for you, the fact that he's washed your sins away. And Jesus, Jesus, he said the same thing, and he actually included it with your offering. You know, your offering, you walk past the offering box in the hallway. We talked about giving offering. Jesus said, listen, if you have your offering in your hand and then realize you have an issue with your brother or someone else or something to be forgiven for, leave it. Just leave it. Don't give it. Go fix the relationship. Make it better. Then come back. He made it very clear. He does not want your offerings. And neither do we. That we need to do this right. And all of this stuff speaks to the fact that you just simply can't go through the motions. All of this is meant to be real tangible from the heart. And if we do it right, it's not easy. But all of those things, if we do them, signal that we understand that we are sinful, that we need to repent and have our sins washed away. This is what Paul is talking about. Let's go on to verses uh, 4 and 5. Romans 6, 4 and 5. He says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. So again, he's connecting the idea of baptism with the death of Jesus Christ. The actual act, the process of going down into the water symbolizes Jesus dying and being buried in the tomb. But at the same time, just as Jesus was raised from the dead, he says, when we rise up from the water, we are raised with him. Because it symbolizes our sins are gone. Now, we shall be noted here that because of its significant within the, significance within the church, baptiz- baptism is not really an optional thing. It's not really one of those things that is kind of, you know, it's cool if you get around to it. People should be baptized. Baptism is an outward sign of what you believe in your heart. Now, we also know that the only thing that really saves us is faith in Jesus Christ, but baptism signifies what you believe. All right? And it's this faith, this faith in Jesus Christ that attaches us to him, even in his death and his resurrection. And this is what Paul is talking about. Now, I want to jump forward just a smidge uh, to verses 9 and 10. Romans 6, 9 and 10. He says, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin. He died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now this is really cool because it's, it addresses sin, uh, excuse me, death in a more complete and total manner. And the main point here is that since Jesus rose from the dead, death has no hold on him. Death has no sway. You ever heard, oh death, where is your sting? comes from 1 Corinthians, that's the idea. Because it, what it tells us is that Jesus, he, he didn't find a loophole to get around death. Right? He didn't get a free pass. Just because his dad was the big guy upstairs, he didn't give him like a side door to go around. 
right? He didn't get special treatment. He died a very painful death for sins he did not commit. But because he rose again, he shows that he has power over death. And when we come to believe in him, when we're baptized into his name, Paul's saying we partake in his resurrection, which is huge. Now I want to pause for a moment. I want to talk about death. I'm going to bring the room up a little bit, you know. <laughs> death is one of the, it's something we are all going to experience at some point in our lives. You know, it's what in the healthcare industry is the great leveler. No matter who you are, whether you came from, death doesn't care about your cultural background, your last name, your bank account, anything. It will come to all of us at one point. And this is why this is important from a human standpoint. This is kind of what Paul's getting to. Death is one of those things that we all like to, whether we admit it or not, we like to push it as far out of our minds as possible. But the farther out of our minds, the less we think about it, the farther away, the less of a reality it is. Because that's how, that's how we like it. I don't, you know, we, I don't even want to know it's there. Right? So far distant, no planning, nothing. It's not even real. And along those same lines, there also seems to be no limit to the amount of busyness, things that we add to our lives to help take our minds off of some of the realities of what's actually going to happen someday. Like the busier life is, the less time you have to contemplate some of the big important questions. And the reason I bring this up is having worked in healthcare in the ER for a number of years, what you, can, what you see is that once your mortality smacks you in the face like a Mack truck, all the priorities, everything you had planned for yesterday, the weeks before, your whole, none of that matters. I mean, zero. All the busyness, all the to-do lists, all the, nothing. Everything that was important to you four hours ago means nothing. The moment you know your mortality is hours away, changes everything. The reason I bring this up is most people, when they reach that point, have no idea What's going to happen to them when they take their last breath? Will it be like a candle going out? Simply be nothing? Or is there heaven? Is there hell? Where am I going to be going? And I want you to understand, mark my words, nothing makes your final hours more scary or terrifying than not only having to face death, but now have any idea what is going to happen. And there's no time to figure it out. And I'm not sharing this to scare anyone. I'm just simply sharing a truth that I've seen with my own eyes. But this is the reason why this matters. This is why Paul wrote the book of Romans in chapter 6. This is huge. If we believe in Jesus Christ, if we believe in him, Paul says we are attached to him in his death. We are attached to him in his what? Resurrection. He defeated death. This is not a joke. It's not a fantasy. Jesus was a real person. He had a small number of followers. This is what's crazy. This is what y'all need to understand. And this is there's a there's a uh, there's a professor. His um, he's an he's an atheist. Uh, I don't remember his name. I had I should have wrote it down. And he, he, people ask this question: Well, is Jesus real? Well, he's a real person. Was he the Messiah? That's a matter of opinion. Here's the question that got him: Does his disciples believe that? Yes. Why would they give their life for a phony? And he can't answer that. And see, this is where it matters. The disciples, think about how death is scary, right? We just admit it. It is. How terrifying it would be. The disciples were willing to give decades off their own life so each one of you would have a chance to know about Jesus Christ. Think about that. 
they're either absolutely insane or they believe something so strongly they were willing to die way early just so people would have a chance to hear the name of Jesus Christ. See, that needs to sink in. That's why Paul says that's why this matters. We need to understand about baptism and dying with Jesus, but also rising with him. That's huge. So when our time actually comes, and we get this right, that can either be a time that actually brings you joy and peace. Because our time is going to come at some point. It does. But it doesn't have to be scary, especially if you know where you're going to be. If you know the moment you close your eyes and take your last breath, you open your eyes and a moment later and you're going to be in paradise with Jesus Christ. See, and that's why Paul goes into so much detail about sin, baptism, and death, because he wants us to get us right. He wants us to get it right. He wants us to be saved. I want to jump ahead just a little bit to verses 12 and 13. He says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. So here's what's cool. Paul's starting to become a little more confident, hopeful that the people that he's talking to are going to do the right thing. So he's giving them instructions on how to live. And his advice is quite good. He says, basically, don't let sin reign. Don't hang around sin. Don't let any part of you do that. Don't let your eyes wander. Don't hang around people or places where sinning happens frequently. One of the things in healthcare that we teach someone who's going through addiction is, not only do you need to stop using the substance, whatever that is, you cannot hang around people who still actively use it on a regular basis. You can't. Addiction is hard enough by itself to conquer. It just is. And you are human. So to hang around people who are actively using it is, you can't do that. It has nothing to do with being a good and bad person. It simply means you have weaknesses. So a big part of the problem that Paul is saying is you need to separate yourselves from that as well. Whatever, the, whatever sin is going on, don't go there. We need to separate ourselves. And instead, he says, we need to be offering ourselves up to God, our lives, to do righteous things, to do good things. And one of the reasons he says this is in verse 14, Romans 6, 14. He says, for sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but you're under grace. I love that. Sin has no hold on us. We are not beholden to it. We can say no. We can choose to do differently. We have the power. We have the freedom through Jesus Christ to live differently. I want to read verse 15, because Paul's going to start to get deeper, not just with sin, but also the kind of sin that people do sometimes. Romans six fifteen. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Now, to get a full understanding of what Paul means here, we need to do a little bit of digging into his words. The way he used the word sin at the beginning of the chapter of 6, we a little bit ago, he was always talking about a bigger type of um, habitual, regular sin, the big stuff, the stuff you would see with your eyes and be like, oh, that's terrible. We need to, don't do that, right? What he's talking about now here in verse 15 is more like a dabbling, superficial, one-time, you know, stuff that we might call little white thing, little white lies, little stuff, little stuff, not that big, right? Even the term little white lies, you've heard that term before, right? I'm not the first person that you've heard that from, right? Little white lies. But I want to share something. Look at these words up here. 
everything about that phrase seeks to diminish the fact that we were just told a lie. Right? You told a falsehood, but it was little. It was a lie. It was tiny. It's a little white, like a snowflake. I mean, it's small. They have red flashing lights. What Paul's saying is those count too. There's no such thing as a little white lie to God. All sin is sin. Big ones, little ones, everything in between. No one gets into heaven just telling us, oh, little one. Look in the Bible. You, you're never going to see a statement that says, well, was it small and little? Then you're fine. It doesn't say that. Let's continue with verses 16 and 17. He says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. So what Paul's actually saying here is that we cannot serve two masters. Whatever we put our attention on, our focus on, whatever we put in front of us repeatedly, that's going to direct our lives. And his point is, it's not something you do on accident. It's a repeated behavior. It's something that we choose. Whether you come out and say, I choose this, the pattern of your life, the direction of your life shows that, whether you say it with your mouth or not. And now let's read verses 18 and 19, because Paul does a good job. He's going to explain why he teaches the way he does, why he uses the words he does. He says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now, you're offering yourself, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. Now before we get too far into these two words, I want to clarify the word slave that's being used here. The word slave in modern English means specifically one thing, how African Americans were treated a while ago in this country. Some Bible translations use the word servant here in this particular verse, and that's probably a better uh, word to use. And the reason I say that is because the Greek word Paul used here is a word called doula. They use this a little bit now in healthcare with someone who's a breastfeeding consultant or a doula. Doula simply means one who serves. So it's very different than the way in America now we use the word slave. So what Paul's doing here is using a term that they would all understand to help them understand the point. Today, if he wrote this, he would say helper, attendant, servant, or assistant. This means someone whose job it is to focus on you, to help you, to get you where you need to go. His point is that people should no longer be slaves, helpers, doulas to their own sinful desires. Right? Rather, they should switch to pursuing righteous pursuits. For example, instead of spending all your time, the direction of your life, amassing as much wealth as you can and then hoarding it away, he's saying, be kind, be generous, have other pursuits. Now, he's also saying, listen, if that's your talent, making money, then be generous. A talent is a talent. It's what you do. It's the direction of your life. Right? Now, Paul's going to get a little... Uh, personal now, in verses uh, 20 to 22. He said, When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now, now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. So it's an interesting angle that he's taking, but I think it's warranted. 
Paul actually says, listen, when you lived a life of sin, you were completely free from righteousness and all the good stuff. You are free. They're completely separate. Again, that may sound like a strange way to describe it, but he's true. What he's saying is you can't mingle the two things. You can't live a life of sin and then do a little bit of good and it makes up for it. Right? You can't. It's one or the other. A life of sin apart from God does not produce joy, happiness, doesn't bring people together, doesn't mend relationships. Great example. No one, at a re, at, no one at a family reunion stands up and gives a toast and talks about all the money they stole, the affairs they had, all the awful stuff. Like, well, toast to that, right? Nobody does that, right? That's the stuff you hide, you don't want to talk about. You delete your search history on the computer. And we do that kind of stuff because we know it's wrong. And so Paul's point is that sinful life, it will produce fruit, but it's not good fruit. It doesn't bring families together, it doesn't heal relationships. But a righteous life following Jesus Christ is something completely different. Completely different. It's completely on the other side of the spectrum. A life following Jesus Christ is good for your soul. It, re- it helps relationships. It's something to be proud of. It brings joy. And he says the end result of that is eternal life. Now I want to read our last verse for today because it's one you've likely heard. And we want to talk about it because it's important. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is the eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the wages of sin is death. Anyone heard that before? It's common, right? We don't really talk like that today a whole lot, right? But to get the full meaning, let's look at the Greek word that Paul used for wages. The Greek word he uses is a word called opsonia. It's actually a combination of two separate words. Opsonia, uh, first opsin, which simply means meat, and onamai, which means purchase. So when they used that word 2,000 years ago, it, they were referring to buying meat rations for soldiers, for workers who had hired to do a job. That's what he was talking about. So whether we realize it or not, each one of us, what he's saying is, we were given gift by God. We were given life on earth. God chose to put us here for a reason. And by God putting us here, giving us the talents he gave us, He gave us a job with expectations of things to do. How we spend our time, what we do with our gifts, how we live a life with God or choose to live apart from God determines how we will be paid our absonia, whether we're rewarded with eternal life or death and separation. When you work for sin, when you live a life apart from God, you have payment. When you follow God, there is payment. They're two different things. We'll be rewarded accordingly. Now, there's actually two stories in the New Testament I want to talk about briefly because they really highlight this really, really well. The first one is uh, from Matthew 25. It's the parable of the talents. And the story goes, there was a, a rich man, and he was leaving for a while, and he gives a portion of his money to three of his servants. He gave the first servant five talents. He gave the next one two talents, and then the third one he gives him one. Now, a talent is simply a biblical uh, unit of weight, and it roughly was about 75 pounds of gold. Quite a bit, right? So today, 75 pounds of gold is worth a little over $1.5 million. So it's a lot of money. So when we say talent, when you tell that story, most people are like, hmm, okay, what's a talent? In this story, it means the first servant got $7.5 million at least. The second service servant was given $3 million, and the third one was given one point five. 
The story goes that the rich man then said, hey, I'm leaving. He didn't say when he was coming back. And he simply left. Left his property for these people to manage. Gone a long time. But he expected them to do something with it. And keep in mind, this relates to us. Because the gifts that God gave each one of you is the same as the money that these people were given. And in the parable, when the rich man finally comes back, the first servant goes up to him and says, listen, I took the 7.5 mil that you gave me. I doubled it. Rich man says, high fives all around. Dynamite job. Beautiful. Well done, good and faithful servant. Then the second one comes in and says, listen, I did the same thing. I took the three million you gave me. I doubled it. I invested it. Second round of high fives. Nice job. When the third servant comes up, he says, listen, I got really scared. I didn't know what to do. And so instead of investing or doing anything with it, I buried it in the ground. Here's your money back. The same, exact same amount you gave me, untouched, unused. Here it is. And the rich man then calls him wicked and lazy and has him cast out. Now the reason I share this parable today is because it's important we understand the third servant didn't get cast out into the darkness because he was out committing double murder, right? Awful, awful things. What did he simply do? Nothing. He didn't, he didn't even try. Which today translates us to the modern world. He, God gave us this life, this time on this earth. He gives all these talents and abilities. We all have our own gifts. And we either choose to use those gifts to try or we make the choice to live apart from God, 100%. In which case, whatever we do, we will be paid accordingly. Now, just to make sure we understand the subject completely, we need to cover all sides. Because if we stop right there, people can get this idea that God is unfair, unjust, harsh, and nothing could be farther from the truth. So here are two things we need to understand to truly get a picture of what, how God is in this situation. Number one, God does not command us to be successful. He commands us to be faithful. God knows when you step out in faith, there are people that you talk to, they're going to be like, yes, I would love to come to your church, whatever. And other people are going to pretend to be on their phone so they don't have to talk to you. God knows when we step out, not everything is going to be a home run. It wasn't a home run for Jesus and disciples for every person. People have free will. Some people are going to hear, some people won't. And we don't force the gospel on anyone. But regardless, we're called to share. We're called to be patient, loving, forgiving, understanding, whether they accept the gospel or not. No matter what happens, we show them love and kindness just the same. All right? The second thing we need to understand about God, to fully grasp his character, I think can be sh- um, we get it with the parable of the prodigal son, and I love this story. I'll do a quick version of it. In this story, there, a father has two sons. One of them, the first one, always gets up on time, does all his work on the farm. Just, just, you know, he's always there. He's right on, right on time for everything. But the other son goes to his father and says, I want my inheritance now. I know you're not dead. I want it now, my half. And so the father does the financial stuff, talks to the lawyer, gets him his half. And what does he do? He runs off. He disappears. He blows it on gambling, prostitution, drugs, everything. The story goes, he eventually runs through it all, He's hungry, and he's jealous of the slop the pigs are eating, right? And he decides, I need to go back home. 
Now, he doesn't decide to go back home because he's going to try to get a second round of inheritance or because he deserves anything. He says, I, I need to go home. What I did was wrong. I need to go home. He hits rock bottom. Now, the Father's response is exact to when him coming back is exactly how God the Father treats us. It's in Luke 25, 22. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. Our father does not want to pay us the wages of sin. He wants us to return to him, to have a life with him, to share our life. He wants us to leave our sin behind, to repent and to do better, to follow his son. That's what he wants. But if we choose, if we choose a life apart from him, he will pay us the salary that that job pays. But he prefers to forgive us, to love us, to wrap his arms around us and welcome us back home. And it's all through his son, Jesus Christ. So now that we come to the end of the teaching for tonight, this is why this matters. This is what Paul wants everybody to know. This is what it always comes down to. That Jesus Christ came to this world to pay for our sins because each one of us is a sinner. Amen? But he can only wipe our sins away if we choose to believe in him. It's a choice. It's a free will. And it's our goal, it's our heart's desire in this church that everybody would know Jesus, would make that choice to know him, to repent of their sins, whatever that is, because we are all sinners, none of us are perfect, but to make that choice. And then to grow in their faith. So like we always do, in a minute we're going to say a prayer, and if you haven't done that, we're going to give you the opportunity. I don't care if you've been here for 40 years or whatever, that's okay. We want you to give you the opportunity to make that choice. And in this prayer, we're also going to pray for everybody to stay strong in their faith, to stay committed to God, because we get pulled away. That's life. It happens. And then we're going to pray for God to use each one of us with your own talents that he gave you. Okay? Let's pray. Father, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you raised him from the dead. And this evening, I ask Jesus to come into my life, to make me new. I ask him to forgive me, to save me, and to lead me and guide my steps for the rest of my days. Father, we as a church, each one here individually, we pray for strength to endure all trials. May everything we go through, whether it's good or bad, may it strengthen our faith and our trust in you. Father, tonight we also, we recommit ourselves to you. Many times we get pulled right and left, we fall out of sync with you, but tonight we make the choice to recommit to you. Father, we also pray for all people to come to know you and to place their trust in you, because it's only through you and the saving grace of your Son that we have hope. Father, we pray that as our faith grows, each one of us, you will use us as you see fit. Each one of us has gifts that are unique that you've given us. Father, use us in all the many ways that you can. Father, we thank you for this church. We ask you to keep sending all people to this church who need to know you. There's so many ways we can reach them. We are your people. This is your church. Father, tonight mostly we want to say thank you for sending your, Jesus, your son, Jesus Christ, to give us hope to give us a new life. And in his name, Father, we ask all these things. Amen.